All right, you may be seated. This is Family Worship Sunday, so all of you kids, you'll be staying with us. We're all worshiping together, singing, going to study God's Word together. So glad to see all of you here. I want you to know it was great for my family and I to be on a little vacation. We uh, What we did is we took our older two, we caught up with our younger ones who were part of the youth mission trip, uh, picked them up in Knoxville, and then we spent a week in the Appalachian Mountains. I think it once crested into the 80s, okay, like 81. So, you know, every once in a while, it's good to pull out of Dodge, especially when it's 100 degrees or so here in, in central Texas. And we just enjoy just making memories with our family. We don't need anything over elaborate, but just playing games, reading books. My troops were tired, so they needed to do a lot of sleeping. Uh, I need a little break myself. Uh, we went uh, floating down a river just on some inner tubes, super cool, very chill. Uh, we did some spelunking, like running around in a cave and Sometimes like crawling on your back, but anyway, that was all fun and good. Uh, went to a museum or two. My kids don't appreciate museums like I do. Like I have a tendency to read everything, and they're they're not in the same ballpark. But anyway, we we really enjoyed our time. We've been kind of planning this for a while. You know, if you're going to go on a family vacation, you got to figure out how you're going to go, what you're going to do. And if you want to get good deals, you got to think ahead and, and order an advance coupon. Really, you can save a lot of money doing things like that. And that's what we did. Plan out our trip. And we were able to execute it. It was awesome. Really glad to go, but always enjoyably back. This morning, though, I'd like to introduce you to some folks that went, uh, their kids, and they went pretty much on the opposite of a family vacation. They were literally ripped away as young teenagers from their homes. They were taken away from their community, their place of worship, all their activities, literally forced taken captive, taken away from everything they found familiar. Uh, I think you may know them, but uh, let me just introduce them to you. You remember a guy by the name of Daniel? And he had some friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these were teenagers, um, probably about the age of 13 through 16. Um, let me have you imagine, in fact, let's not just even imagine, if you were between, let's say, like 12 to 16, could you stand up so we know what we're talking about? If you're between the ages of 12 and 16, yeah, that's you, Faith. All right, just back to your mission trip. All right, all of you, I want you to, everybody, take a look around. What would it look like if these good-looking kids were literally ripped out of their family? Like, they're standing here, but they're now gone. What would that feel like for you, Mom and Dad, and your grandparents, or for the rest of us in this church? What would it feel like for you if you're standing to suddenly be taken away captive. Thanks for standing and be seated. I want you to keep those kids in mind because that was about the age when Daniel and his friends were hauled off out of Jerusalem into Babylon, about 550 miles away to a culture that was absolutely, completely foreign. Now let me give you just some of the background of what is taking place. Find your Bibles, find the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. And as you're doing so, let me give you some of the background. In Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So let me bring you back to about 605 B.C. There are two world superpowers. There is Babylon, 
and there are the Egyptians. And as they continued to grow in influence, it would be inevitable that they were going to come into conflict. And sure enough, they had this major all-out war. And the battle, the primary battle, took place in the northern part of the uh, Euphrates, a place called Carchemish, and the Babylonians won. In fact, they won rather decidedly, and they started just literally beating the Egyptians back all the way through the land of Israel, forcing them back to the Nile River. So the Egyptians are in retreat. Babylon is just conquering. They're taking over all the territory, including now the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. And they are literally winning the war. They are now the most dominant force in the world. They are the Babylonian Empire. And then suddenly, August 15th or 16th, 605 B.C., we know this from Babylonian records, something terrible happened in Babylon. The commander for the Babylonian armies was a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. His dad dies on that, at that time. And he is informed that his dad has died, and what he needs to do is immediately make his way back to Babylon, because he is now going to be crowned the king of Babylon. He will be the king of the all the world at this point. And so, before he makes his way, though, since they've already conquered Jerusalem, he decides that he is going to take trophies that he's going to present to his God, and that's what we find there. They took vessels from the house of God. So in the temple, there were various instruments used for the worship of Yahweh. They were carefully designed, just like the Old Testament had spelled out. They took some of these, but not only did they take some of these instruments for worship, they also took some of the choice boys and girls out of Israel, and they are going to brainwash them. They are going to conform them to the actual thoughts and ideals of Babylon. And so that's what you find here. Nebuchadnezzar then becomes the king. He takes these, these temple instruments and puts them before his god. Shinar is another name for Babylon. And he presents them to his god, Bel, or Marduk, the Babylonian god of war. And they would do this to say two things. One, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, thank you for giving me this victory over this local deity called Yahweh. And the other thing it was, is to mock whatever god that they conquered. Now, Something you need to know. Did you notice this in verse 2? It's the Lord. God actually gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't like, well, God's powerless. And God is going to show that he's not some sort of local deity, some sort of regional God. Yahweh, the God of Scripture, is the one true God, whether he is recognized or not. And what he did is he established a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Do you remember that? He said this in Deuteronomy 28, and it was spelled out. He said, if you walk with me, you obey me. You walk with me with joy of heart. You're not just kind of going through the motions. I will make you a great blessing. In fact, you will stand out as a people for my own possession. You will show the nations what it looks like to know the one true living God. That's what we're designed for. And I will show the world through you. If you will just walk with me with enjoy, you will obey me. But on the other hand, he said, if you will not, if you disregard my word, if you adopt all these foreign deities, you go into idol worship, you treat me as trivial, I will bring discipline upon you. I will always try to bring you back. 
And the most excessive form of discipline I would ever bring upon you is that I will actually have you hauled off in exile if that will, is what it takes to get your attention. You see, God is so committed to us experiencing covenant relationship. He'll do whatever it takes to break you out of your malaise and out of your just complacency so that you will know his goodness and walk in his joy. Well, what happened with the people of Israel? You know what they did? They forsook God. Yeah, they kind of went through the motions. You know how it is. And you see people like, well, I just don't have to go to church. And you just barely tolerate it. And you kind of mumble through a few songs. You can't wait for the sermon to get over. You hardly are praying. You're actually thinking about your grocery list. And you're just going through the motions. Furthermore, you've got, adopted all the ideals of the world. And, and whatever little idols are put before you, well, those things really capture your attention and your affection and your money. And you want it. Well, that's exactly what happened in Israel. And as God had promised, you forsake me, you won't obey me, you won't know my goodness and my joy and all the love that I'm trying to show you. Well, that's exactly what happened. I will haul you off into exile. It'd be the equivalent if, like, Iran came over and actually conquered us, and they took some of our best boys and girls, our little teenagers that were just standing up there, and hauled them off. That's what's taking place. They were, the people of Israel were defeated, they were denigrated, and they were deported. And this was really the first of three deportations that took place. There was 605, 597 BC, and then 538, there was this large one where they literally took many of the people and held them off into Babylon. And they took the blue chip kids first. Let me tell you why they did this. See, when Nebuchadnezzar was coming back to assume the, his father's position as king, he wanted to take the choice boys and girls back, and he was going to brainwash them. And he was going to do this for a period of three years, so that when he brought back many of the other people of Israel, he could actually lead them through Israelites who had now become thoroughly pagan, totally Babylonian. It was an effective strategy. And so you see in verse 3, then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. And look at this. They were youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so he's taking these top kids... And he's going to thoroughly conform them. And so he puts a leader over them, and he brings the Chaldeans. These were the most influential men of the kingdom. They were taught astronomy, astrology, mathematics, natural history, mythology, agriculture, architecture, and the old languages of Babylon. They had their own school. They kind of lived probably in something like a dormitory. And he's not only going to have them taught all these things, but notice what else he did in verse 5. Then the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years, and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And so what they would do when they groomed people for the court, they actually had them eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine, because they wanted them to get used to functioning at a high level and what it looked like to be nobility and to be able to serve the king. And so that's what's happened. They took all these fine Jewish boys and girls and just literally brainwashed them. And furthermore, they even took it to the extent 
where they changed their names. Look at this in verse 6. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the command of the officials, the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So like Daniel, his name means God is my judge. We're going to change everything about you. We're changing your name now to Belshazzar. Bel, protect the king. They did the same with Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They gave them names that were popular in the culture that honored their local deities. And so here we have these teenagers. They are being completely brainwashed. Babylon is going for total transformation to make them thoroughly pagan, thoroughly Babylonian. We saw this, like, if you've ever taken Texas history kids, do you remember a gal, a 12-year-old by the name of Cynthia Ann Parker? You ever heard of her? Okay, we've got someone. Yes. What happened is the Comanches came, and on a raid, there was a 12-year-old girl named Cynthia Ann Parker. After killing her parents, they actually captured her at age 12, and they thoroughly made her Comanche. She was raised by the Indians. She married an Indian. She gave birth to one of their most famous Indian chiefs. Uh, a very famous fighter. And every opportunity she had to go back, she rejected and refused. 24 years after being captive by the Comanches, her uncle, Colonel Isaac Parker, was able to successfully rescue her. But she never was able to adjust back to life as she knew it. She would refuse food. Uh, here's a picture of her. Um, you might think like, oh, she's got a cute little haircut. That must have been the style back then. Actually, cutting your hair was the Comanche sign of mourning. And she was in great mourning. And that's what happened. She was completely owned by the Comanche culture. That's what's taking place with all these choice boys and girls heading off from Israel to Babylon. And really, if you think about it, there is this pull even in our own culture to take you away from a faith in God with vibrancy and to walk with Him to get you to completely conform to the world around you. It's presented in the media. I, the peer pressure that our kids face, and you kids know this, isn't it? It's immense to not ever say anything about walking with God or to share your faith and to fit right in with the culture, to sing its songs even when they're immoral, to treat people poorly, to engage in all sorts of like inappropriate jokes and things that are mean. To treat people, uh, some people mice, and to reject others. And it, it, the pressure on our kids is tremendous. And you kids know that, don't you? Well, that's what they were facing. It's kind of like if you've ever been in the ocean, and you go in about four feet, and the waves come, but there's like this undertow, and it literally feels like it's just pulling you into the ocean. These kids were in the undertow of Babylon. And they were literally being pulled completely into their culture. Everything they once knew was to be forgotten. This God that they once served is to be forsaken. And they are to be thoroughly Babylonian. How in the world do you walk with God in a world of opposition? How were they even supposed to live? Well, I want you to take some lessons from some teenagers. Because frankly, that's what we're facing right now. The pressure to conform... How do you walk with God in a world that's opposing him? Well, let's take a look here. Beginning here in verse 8, I want to point out one thing here. You want to stay close to God in every circumstance. Look at this, verse 8. But Daniel 
But Daniel, like, here's this avalanche, it's all coming down, and there's one guy that stands up. But Daniel, he made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. See, Daniel and his friends had made up their minds that they were not going to defile themselves with whatever the king was going to put before them. They were going to walk with God. They had decided that we're going to stay close to you no matter what we face. Can you imagine how scared you would be if you were just one of those teenagers that just stood up and you were held off to a completely foreign culture where they're trying to indoctrinate you and get you to conform? They had made a decision, we're not going to capitulate. It always starts with the heart. They made up their mind. They literally placed it in their heart. They were not going to give up on God or give up walking with God. It's kind of like this. You can, you heard this statement, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the what? Country out of the boy, right? And that's what they did. They took the boys out of the country of Israel. But in some of these kids, they could not take the worship of God out of them. It always starts from the heart. You know, how you respond to your trials is actually determined by how you are living before you hit them. You know that? And that's what these boys faced. Daniel was not one of these fair-weathered friends when it came to faith in God. You know, I'll, I'll worship God when it's convenient or cool or I'm really in trouble. No, I'm going to walk with God no matter what happens. You want to walk with God in the midst of a world that opposes him? You know what else you do? Not only do you stay close to God in every circumstance, but you, notice verse 8, you stay clear to what will defile you. Did you see that? It said, we're not going to defile ourselves with the king's choice food or the wine in which you drank. Now, let me help you understand this. The reason that the food issue became a big deal is because in the Hebrew scriptures, the Mosaic law, God said, listen, I'm going to set you apart, and there's from all the other nations. I want people to see you as different because you belong to me. And one of the ways we're going to do that is there's just certain foods that you're not going to eat. Well, in Babylon, they're sacrificing all this food to their gods, and they, they eat things like ham and pork rib. And God had written in his word as, as Israelites they were following, and they're like, these boys knew there's no way that we could eat this food. But it goes deeper than that. In Babylon, what they would do is they would take their meal, whatever they're going to eat, and they literally sacrificed the food to their gods. They saw it as this. In the Babylonian way of thinking, to eat the meal of food that was sacrificed to their god was to have fellowship with that god himself. It was like you're being nourished by God. It was actually seen as an act of worship. Okay? So they saw themselves as communing with their gods by eating food that had been given to them. When Daniel and his friends pick up on this, they're saying, you know what? This is where we've got to draw a line. You can change our names. You can change our jobs. You can feed us your literature. You can teach us your language. But when it comes to bowing the knee to anyone but the one true God, we can't do that. And so, Daniel finds himself in this situation. And friends, it's a situation that you and I find ourselves in. 
are you going to just bow down and capitulate to this culture? Let's take it home. For you kids in school, where there is conformity for you to have the language that's vulgar, to enjoy, quote-unquote, the jokes and the music and the things that are far from God, that degrade females, that are filled with all sorts of vulgarity, that have the speech patterns of all the swearing that is so common. Are you going to take a stand and say, I'm not going to do that? Are you going to take a stand like, hey, I'm going to walk with God even if it's not popular? If you're in high school or junior high or you're in college, what are you going to do when it comes to your morals? Are you just going to go with the way of the world? Are you just going to go and do whatever thing that is popular, uh, that you're seeing on TV, what uh, your other kids are talking about? Or are you saying, you know what? I'm going to walk with God. I'm willing to take a little bit of heat or a little bit of ribbing or being even made fun of. Which apparently is very hard if, in today's culture. The, con- the pressure to conform and to fit in is so strong. What are you going to do? If you're an adult, you've got a job, are you going to just, hey, whatever it takes to make money, that's what I'm going to do? I'll, I'll treat worship of God, that's a Sunday morning deal, but my ethics and my morals will meet the occasion for me to make money or for me to gain power or status. These are real issues. You want to figure it out before you get into the fight. And for Daniel and his friends, he's like, wow, I realize what we're facing. See, when I, after I became a Christian, uh, one of my, my first disciples, a guy by the name Doug Gardner, a fellow college kid, he told me this, it's not how close you can get to sin, it's how far you can get away from it. It's not like, hey, can I just get right up to the edge, right up to the line, kind of almost great, not sure. No, you just get away from it. And that's what Daniel and his friends, they see this. They, they're not going to go with everybody else is doing it, or we just better obey the king, or we're going to keep our faith private. No, we're not going to capitulate when it comes to the worship of false gods, and that's how they saw this food issue. You want to you wanna walk with God in a world that opposes him? You want to stay clear to the things that will defile you. And you know what those sin issues are. You want to stay clear. Let me give you a third. Look at beginning at verse 9. You want to stay considerate of others. Look at this. Look how Daniel, okay, this is a teenage boy, maybe around 15. Look how he handles the situation. This is instructive. Verse 9, or I'll pick that back. Excuse me here in verse 8 where he said, I'm not going to defile myself. And so he sought permission. Do you see that? From the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So he said, I'm going to go to the commander and I'm going to make a proposal. Now, look at verse 9. Now, God. You see God's at work? It looks like, whoa, these people are in a very difficult situation. Some would say God's abandoned them. Absolutely not. That never happens. God's at work. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, Whoa, I heard what you had to say. I am afraid of my lord, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are, are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my hand to the king. He's saying, listen, my job is to thoroughly indoctrinate you. My job is to make you very healthy and strong. You're supposed to eat the best food, the king's food. You're supposed to drink his wine. Listen, you don't eat all this good food that's coming down on the cafeteria line. Man, I will lose my head. This king doesn't play games. 
Listen to what Daniel, what Daniel said to the overseer, verse 11, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Listen, listen to what he said. Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Things that will not defile us. Just vegetables and water. And then verse 13, then let our appearance be observed in your presence and in the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So what he's saying is like, listen, how about you do this? For just 10 days, we'll just eat vegetables and water. And if our appearance is such that we seem healthier, or he says that we appear fatter, okay, then we'll continue on this. And so, verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. You, you want to see something here? Do you see how he was considerate of the guy who oversaw him? I'll have to say that you probably have this experience where you're trying to share the gospel of Christ, about how Christ literally came perfect to this earth, lived a perfect life, paid the penalty for sins on the cross, and, resur and was resurrected. And you try to share Jesus with people about how good it is to know him and the forgiveness, and they're like, clamp up. I've met Christians before. They've either worked with them, or they've, they've seen them, or they went to school with them, and maybe they were... Uh, they didn't do their job well, or they were super confrontive and in their face. I'm like, you have, to, you have to wait through a lot of garbage. I've even had to apologize for the behavior of other Christians. Like, well, I don't, I'm sorry that they said that they shouldn't have, but let me just tell you about God and how he really is. You see, when you deal with people, especially in a world that is hostile to him, you need to show consideration. Not capitulation, but consideration. You handle yourself with respect and esteem and honor. You treat people well. You want an audience with folks? This is how you do it. This is a good lesson right here on how Daniel and his friends did it. And not only did they show consideration for others, but did you notice this in verse, verses 12 and 13? You want to walk with God in a hostile world? You want to stay connected to other believers. Do you see how they're grouped together? They're, they're with each other. They're praying together. They encourage one another. There are fellow Jewish children that are totally giving in. They're just eating this food sacrificed to all these false gods. They're buying in hook, line, and sinker what's being taught them. But Daniel and his friends, they're together. They are connected. I will tell you this. The person who Satan picks off is the lone wolf. If you're out there and you see yourself as just kind of a straggler, and you, you always choose to separate. You're a kid, you're like, oh, I don't really need to go to an adventure club. Um, I don't really want to have any Christian friends. You're in high school or junior high, and you're like, man, I don't need a youth group. I'll just run with my pack here at school. You're in college, you don't get involved in a local church. You don't actually have a Christian group of, of friends. You're an adult. You refuse to be involved in any sort of small group where you might actually have interface and encourage one another or be encouraged or to have prayer with other people. You always are separating. Friends, those are the people that get picked off. Daniel had what you call friends. They are together. They encourage one another. And let me show you something else. If you really want to see how do you walk with God in a hostile world, 
You want to stay cognizant of how God is working in your midst. Stay alert, stay awake, and see how God might be working. Look at verse 14. So this, this guy who's overseeing all their diet and their training, he listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter, you see that, than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. If you ever want to know, where does the Daniel diet come from? This is where it comes from, okay? But you know that the Daniel diet is working if you're getting fatter. They don't actually include that in the book, but if you want to be biblical about it, it's right here. If you're getting fatter, the Daniel diet's working, all right? Just for you that are considering that. So, verse 16, the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. What's going on here? God's at work. Like in vacation Bible school, you know what we call this? God sighting. Where do we see God at work? Or the fingerprints of God in the midst of our situation. When you're walking with God in a world that's opposed to him, you always want to be looking. Where's God working? Because he is. Keep your eyes open. You'll see it in your own life, in your family, and in friends, in our church, in our community. God is at work. Even if it looks like, man, this is all terrible. We're like living in Babylon. It seems to be getting worse. It might get really bad real soon. Be looking for how God is at work. He is the universal God. He holds the whole world in his hand. Didn't we just sing that? And it is true. And so, verse 17, and as for these four youths, look at this. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then look at this, verse 18. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, so after three years of doing this, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. Now they are actually attendants at the king's court. And look at verse 20. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. What you see there is that Daniel outlives the king Nebuchadnezzar himself. And did you see who was in control? It was God who gave Israel over because of discipline issues. It was God who was with the kids and having them get stronger and healthier. It was God who gave them wisdom. It's God at work. And in a world that is hostile to him and opposed to him, you always want to be looking, God, how are you working? And God always works through his people. It's kind of like it says in 1 Samuel 2.30. Simply says this, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who seek to honor God, God is going to honor. Possibly in this life, oftentimes in this life, but most certainly in the life to come. So how did they do this? How did these young boys and girls, how did Daniel and his friends really walk with God in such a hostile world? How did they have the ability to do that? I'm going to present three things to you. One, I think they had parents and grandparents that lived the faith and modeled it for their kids. 
These kids, remember like the ones that just stood up? If they were suddenly just gone this afternoon, would they have a pattern from their parents or their grandparents of how to walk with God? Or would it be like, oh man, my parents never told me about this. They kept their faith really privately. No, I think they had seen this before. I remember uh, hearing from one gal in our church, and she told me this. My dad made it so easy for me to follow Jesus. Isn't that good? I saw it in my parents. Let me give you another way of how they were able to do this. Not only did they have parents and grandparents, but these kids had patterns in their life. They didn't like get hauled off into Babylon like, whoa, we got to totally live differently, and now we got to take our faith seriously. I actually think that as young men, young women, teenagers, they actually already knew how to pray. They knew how to read the Bible, the scriptures. They had already sought to live lives that were honoring to God. This wasn't something new. This was a pattern in their life. And the journey of walking with God began long before they showed up in Babylon. It had been, been started when they were at home. And let me give you the third. They had not only parents and grandparents, they not only had some patterns in their life, but they knew the power of God's presence. You see, God is the one, just like the text says, that gives strength and wisdom. He will give you courage. You don't have to live in fear. He gives you the ability to live by faith. But if you and I are going to know the power of God, the issue of sin must be addressed in our lives. That's why God sent his son. God sent the eternal son of God to enter into this life. He lived perfect, a perfect human. He fulfills all the law. He goes and dies on a cross so that he will pay the penalty for sin so you and I don't have to face it. And he rose again three days later, fully alive, and giving to all who will truly trust in him eternal life, life with God forever, his strength, his presence, so that you and I can honor God from the heart. In fact, it goes so far as to say that Christ actually dwells in our hearts by faith. And so, friends, if you want to know how do you honor God in a world that is opposed to him, it kind of goes down to this. God honors those who honor him. God honors those who honor him. And through his spirit, you can actually do just that. Sometimes this honor occurs in this life, and, and most certainly in the life to come. You see, what is done in this life to the honor of God, it echoes throughout all eternity. In just a few days... The 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio is just about ready to start. You are going to see on display some of the world's finest athletes. You're going to be totally blown away by what they can do. Don't try to like do some of the things they do at home, you know, like pole vaulting up these heights or jumping over these things. I mean, some of the things they're about to do is like it's taking a lifetime to hone these skills. And you're going to be in awe, not only of their athletic prowess, but you know what they're going to do is they've been working now for several years of gathering the stories of these athletes, and they're going to present them to you. And you're going to hear a little bit of their backstory. You're going to be surprised on what they've had to do. And there is a famous Olympian from 92 years ago that his story really kind of rocked the world. His name is Eric Little. He's one of my favorites. He was a runner for the Great Britain in the 1924 uh, Summer Olympic Games that were held in Paris. And this young man, Eric Little, that was born of missionary, spent actually most of his time in China, and then came back to Great Britain. He was from Scotland, and it was 
while he's in Scotland, that he is now actually coming of an age where he could actually run for Great Britain. In fact, he was so became so well known because he, he really hardly ever lost a race that he was seen as Great Britain's best hope for gold medal. And they were excited because he was expected to win pretty much every race that he entered. But with Eric Little, he had the conviction that my life is meant to honor God. And how he saw the scriptures, he saw that on Sunday, Sunday would be the one day of the week that I would devote to the worship of God. And I would not work, I will not train, I will not run, and I most certainly will not race. That was his conviction, that Sunday he saw as a Sabbath, just set apart to God, and that's how he practiced his faith. Long before the Olympic Games started, the schedule came out, and it was shocking what Eric read. The prelims, the very initial races for the 100 meters, the race that he was expected to win a gold medal in, was on a Sunday. And as he kept reading, he saw that the 4x100 relay and the 4x400 relay, the finals were on Sunday. On another Sunday, he's like, I can't believe it. But I, I am not going to run. I, for me, it's a matter of faith. This is how I worship God. And so he made the announcement, I will not run the 100 meters, and I won't run in this relay. I'll run in the 200, and I'll see if I can make it the 400, which wasn't the strongest event. How do you think he was received by his fellow countrymen in Great Britain? Anybody know? They absolutely went ballistic on him. Almost everybody opposed him. They didn't even find it noble that he was trying to walk with God, and that was his conviction. They ripped him apart. They said that he was disappointing his, his king and his country. They tried to shred him. Like, can't you just run for about 10 seconds on one Sunday? And he says, I will not do it. In fact, he goes to the Olympic Games, and on the Sunday that he's supposed to run the prelims on the 100, you know what he does? He preaches at a church at the exact same time they're running the prelims for the 100 meters. When he was asked about his convictions, this is what he said after the church service. I don't need explanations from God. I simply believe him and accept whatever comes my way. And so Eric Little competed in the events that he felt like he could because they weren't on a Sunday. He actually got a bronze medal in the 200 meters. Uh, he, he was making it in the 400 meters, but just barely. In fact, he just barely made it into the finals of the 400 meters. He was the very last entrant. And so if you've ever run track and field, you know that the 400 meters, they have the staggered start. And the best, the fastest runners, they get the inside lane so they can see everybody and you know exactly where you're at. And the guy who had the, the worst time but still made it, he's on the outside lane. You can't see your competitors. You don't really know where they're, where they're coming. You're listening for their, their footsteps and for their breathing, but you can't tell where they're at. Right before they start the finals, in the 400 meter Olympic Games, 400 meters in the Olympic Games, there is an American trainer that jogs up to Eric Little as he's getting ready in the outside lane, and he hands him a piece of paper. And Eric Little opens this piece of paper, and it simply says this, 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. And he rolls up the piece of paper, and he puts it in his hand, and he gets down in the crouch to start. The gun goes off, and Eric runs the race of his life. Throughout the entire race, he never saw one of his competitors, and that's because he became so far ahead of them. He finished five meters ahead the next entrant. He was 
he was so far ahead, he ran so fast that he actually broke the Olympic record. And he finished holding this piece of paper, and he broke the tape, and he sent a message loud and clear, God honors those who honor him. In the movie that was made about Clyde, Chariots of Faith, Chariots of Fire, he tells his sister this, Jenny, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And friends, that's what God wants. He wants us to feel his pleasure, to know his goodness, to walk with him with joy, to not be embarrassed about God, but to honor him, to look to honor him, and God will assuredly honor those who do just that. And so friends, let's take great heart from Daniel and his friends and take a few lessons on how to walk with God in a world that opposes him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing chapter in the Bible. And God, for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, that they just simply pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, I believe in Christ. I believe that he gives me forgiveness and new life. And Lord, for all of us, we feel the pressures of society to conform. We feel it in our schools, on our university campuses. We feel it in our community, even, and certainly in our world. God, give us the grace and strength, which you do, for your glory, that we would stand and honor you. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.